Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On today's episode, we are talking about borrowing for college. Fundamentally, structurally speaking, the system is in fact broken. And so the question then becomes, okay, well, what do you do about it? I think there are a few different constituents that really matter here. One remains the federal government, one is the private sector, and then the the borrower themselves. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Well, you know, it is coming up to a big deadline. The deadline when families have to determine which college and more importantly, which college's financial aid package is best for them. We've got two fantastic guests. We've got David Klein and Kelly Peeler from Common Bond, and they are going to help us navigate a treacherous landscape where it's very difficult to determine what's a grant, what's a loan, what's subsidized, what's not, how much am I paying? This is such an important topic for both the young folks who are listening, but also their parents and grandparents. So here is our deep dive into student loans with Kelly Peeler and David Klein. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Kelly Peeler back on the show. Very exciting. But now you've got a new title and you've got some big news for us, but you are here (laughs) to talk about the college loan financing prospect for all these families who are facing that is it a May 1st deadline, essentially? For most colleges, yes. So April 1st was was when kind of like, yay, oh my goodness, I got into all my dream colleges that I wanted to. And a, and a lot of colleges, because they want you to enroll, will set deadlines pretty early. Um, so they kind of only give you like around a month, depending on the college. So May 1st, yes. So if you've never heard me interview Kelly before, shame on you. But let's <laughs> do a little bit of your background. So Kelly, you went to college and then you were studying um, bubbles, right? Right, financial yeah, crisis. I studied the history of financial crises during the housing crisis, which was interesting, to say the least. In live time, right? Yeah, in live time. And then you stumbled upon the idea that potentially the next big crisis could be the student loan crisis, right? Yeah, I worked at J.P. Morgan um, covering financial institutions and was asked to make 100 to $200 million cross-asset allocation investment portfolios with a few clients who were interested in trying to short the student loan market. And that's when I really started digging into the $1.5 trillion student loan market that affects 44 million Americans and was like, oh, wow, this feels like a lot very similar to the housing crisis, a lot of similar leading indicators, a lot of very confusing paperwork, loans that have no downward pricing pressure because they're coming from the federal government, and really, most importantly, a change in consumer identity. So people right now think that to be an American and to have success is to go to college. Um, Similar to post-housing crisis was to to be an American was own two or three homes. Mm. Um, And so that's when I was like, wait a second, Um, I really want to try to think about redesigning this entire process for the now 70 million people who are considered Gen Z um, or the next wave of millennials and and make it more transparent and trusted. And so you created a company called Next Gen Vest. Yep. And the the core concept that was underlying that was that you were um, or one of was that you matched students Mm -hmm. with money mentors. So who are the money mentors? Money mentors are trained college students. So they themselves have had loans. They've probably done work study. 
And they were looking for a way to both help other students get trained. Um, so they're probably interested in going to financial services and make some money on the side. Um, and so we train money mentors. We put them through a whole training program. And what they do is they talk and coach students anywhere from 17 years old to kind of freshman, sophomore in college through the whole process. So anything from finding scholarships, filling out the FAFSA, negotiating their college tuition, understanding their financial aid packages, picking the cheapest meal plan, and really kind of in a way that's relatable to an 18-year-old kid. Our whole platform is over text message, so you can get help at 11 p.m. on a Sunday from someone who's kind of like you and who's been there before. Interesting um, that you have younger people talking to younger people. Was yep. that part of the thesis here that you, you know, an old fart like me <laughs> saying like, duh, 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 sound, it's better coming from someone who's closer in age? Totally. I mean, this Gen Z or this the next wave of millennials. So th- these are the people who are spending two hours a day on Snapchat. Okay. And how old are they right now? Those the, Gen the, Anywhere from, they're teenagers. So okay. teenagers and, you know, into college right now. Okay. These are they just totally talk different than you or I. Uh, I'm a, I'm a millennial, so I, even different than I am. I'm First a of all, Kelly, <laughs> I basically feel like I could be your mother. So let, let's just call it. Me. I'm your cool aunt, Jill. Okay, that that's Done. what we'll do because you got that mother. But so those kids, they communicate differently. Yeah. They love text. They love text. They love memes. They like emojis. They like gifts. They like putting filters on everything. And so money and especially student loans is is really really stressful time period for an 18-year-old. I mean, they're basically buying a house, right? They're signing up to buy a house, $200,000 to go to college. Mm. And they're doing it with not a ton of guidance. They're doing it where their source of truth is potentially their parents who the cost of college was totally different for, for parents. So they're not really totally knowledgeable of how this goes. Maybe their college counselor who is trying to help 500 other kids mm. um, or trying to Google and read crappy blogs. Um, right. And so what we found kind of our key insight was is that stressful money topics have to be discussed or made more transparent by someone who you trust. Um, and that happens to be for our user, which are you know an 18, 19 year old kid, someone who's already been there, someone who's gone through the process and who has been trained, who can also talk to you in a relatable way. And using a money mentor was a free service, right? Yep. Just explain this before we get into like what your next phase has been because that was free. How can you provide such a service for free or how were you able to? The short answer is that our, our broader vision was to really think about how do we redesign the whole process of student loans. So whether that was making our own loans at some time, maybe that was um, introducing a subscription service, but we found a partner in Common Bond that we really aligned with our broader mission and vision who acquired us, which was really exciting for our team so that we could continue to offer the service for free um, and not be pressured to do anything that would be against the actual interest of our end user. And and is it moneymentor.com or dot- Yep, it's money-mentor.com. Money-mentor.com. Yeah. Okay. And so how have people stumbled upon you? Do you go and talk to guidance counselors or how do you get the word out besides yeah. us? Yeah. <laughs> we do um yes, we go into high schools and do workshops for free. If you're a parent or a student um, at, you know, a thousand person high school, we will come in and help your college counselor. We'll host FAFSA nights. We'll host how to negotiate your tuition nights. um, And then we'll sign people up for money mentors if they want um, additional help. So a few weeks ago, I did a segment about college Mm -hmm. and student loans. And we found this woman who 
uh, had graduated undergrad with pretty reasonable debt, maybe mm-hmm. say ten thousand bucks. Okay, yeah. but it was uh, she was very interested in art history. Mm-hmm. She really wanted to be like a museum curator. Yeah, she then went to grad school. Ugh, okay. It all went sorry, down. Sorry, I, I know, know that reaction. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's like it all went downhill from there. Anyway, she ends up uh, with a wonderful master's from a nice school mm-hmm. and uh, about let's say sixty grand in debt. When she got out of that program, she could get a job mm-hmm. that actually paid eleven dollars an hour. Wow. Okay. So she Which I'm also not surprised. I by know, that. right? It's so hard. Yeah. So now she gets out of school, she takes her eleven dollar job, she's living in New York, trying yeah. to like great arts community. Right. right. <clears throat> yeah. It was bad. Yeah. So anyway, long story short is that flash forward, she ends up with uh, paying twenty something thousand dollars down on this debt mm-hmm. and still has an outstanding loan balance now of sixty five or right. sixty seven thousand yep. dollars. She went back and got a, a certificate in coding, mm-hmm. moved back to mm. North Carolina, got a great job go. and tackling the debt. Good for her. Okay, so now we come out, we doing we've done the segment and I given my advice. And so I said, well, you know, obviously we would like to have different conversations before she assumed that debt. Mm-hmm. It'd be great if she could have figured out that there are actually no jobs in that industry right. and that they pay really <laughs> crappy and that yeah. all this stuff, right? And then we were talking about broader advice and I talked about negotiating yep. with schools. Right. I got a um, very interesting email mm. from someone who said, stop perpetuating the myth. <laughs> this is, yeah. she's, I work yeah. in college admissions. Yeah. And she said, and we don't negotiate ever. And I said, that may be. And so I wrote her back very mm-hmm. nicely. Maybe true at your school. Yep. I know countless instances right. yep. of negotiating. Yeah. Can you back me up on that? 100%. We help students in the past year and a half negotiate over $300,000 in tuition costs. Sometimes it is. Which doesn't apply to every college, for sure. Right. Of course. But like there are sometimes uh, where you say, hey, I got this offer mm-hmm. from this college and mm-hmm. they're giving me a $25,000 a year free money, right? A grant grant. And we'll talk or, about that. Or a merit scholarship. Or, or sorry, you know, scholarship, yeah, right? Yeah. Can mm-hmm. you do something? Yeah. And sometimes they say no. But as you said, sometimes they say Just yes. Just like asking for, a, you know, a raise in your salary. Sometimes your boss says no, but it's worth asking. So one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you in is that when I saw you recently, because I was on the Common Bond campus. I mm-hmm. like calling it a campus. It makes it sound bigger. All right, office. <laughs> I was in the Common Bond office, hawking my book is what I was really doing. <laughs> Kelly was nice enough to sort of say, hey, come talk about your book at our company. And as I was uh, there, you put in front of me three different letters from three different institutions to the same person right yes okay and so same student same student and what you were showing me was how different award letters can look and i found this fascinating because all right so let's go through this and let's just say what an award letter is okay so even that is a little bit misleading so when you get into college Yay, celebration, I got in. Then you get your financial aid package. So that's basically your bill. However, colleges deem this as your financial aid award letter, which sounds like you're getting a prize. But it's basically your bill. It's it's a breakdown of the cost of tuition and then also like what you might get with scholarships, grants, and different loans, which are somehow bucketed in there and sometimes subtracted from the total cost. But it is what we're looking at is one student's options or bills to go to three different colleges and they're called financial aid award letters. All right. So I'm just going to pick, let's just pick this one. We won't say what university it yeah. is. All right. So now we're looking at, uh, let's call it, what's the matter you? 
And here at the top, <laughs> tuition and fees. Yep. Thirty eight thousand eight sixty eight. Mm-hmm. Room and board. Fifteen grand total, fifty-four thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and then of course, by the way, they say indirect costs not yep. reflected on bill, books and supplies, transportation, miscellaneous, miscellaneous, miscellaneous. And by the way, this is a, such a low number; it's ridiculous. Yep. It is. There's no way that that's the number right. for okay. So now let's go down, and now we have the total estimated cost of attendance, both direct and indirect. They mm-hmm. say it's fifty-six grand, and right. it says your financial aid package is based on this figure. Here is the financial aid award package. Mm -hmm. And there are two semesters, there's fall, there's spring. Which, let me just point out, this is only for one year. So most students go to college for four, call it five years on average. They might do an extra year, right? So you're, you're only getting a bill for one year. And the reason why I say that's important is because the cost of higher education has consistently gone up tuition prices have consistently gone up every year for the past 30 years. So it's really hard to plan ahead and make a decision if you're only seeing the cost for one year. Okay. So there's a lot of stuff in here, right? We have the Dean Scholarship, Yep. which I guess is a scholarship mean that you get it, that's your money and it's not taxable and that's that? Yes. A so plain old scholarship. plain old scholarship. You don't owe it back. And then you get another thing that's an award, which is also... Don't have to pay it back. Don't have to pay it back. Yep. Then there's a space, and doesn't say anything else here. Just mm-hmm. a space. Subsidized Stafford loan, seventeen fifty. Unsubsidized Stafford loan, a thousand. Mm-hmm. Federal work study, a thousand, and then Federal Parent Plus loan. And then you you look down, and if you don't read this carefully, and we don't decipher all of this, mm-hmm. we see twenty eight thousand two ninety one is what you think you're getting. Yep. So that's the total. That's like the total line. That's the total line for this semester. And then the same for the second semester. And there's the total, which mm-hmm. miraculously is $56,000. Okay. So cheap, right? <laughs> cheap. But what's interesting is when you look at that, when you look at this first glance, what's happening is 11, 12, 13, 14. So there's basically 15, about half mm-hmm. of what they say is your award per semester yep. is, in fact, alone yep and the other half is in fact a scholarship yep you know who just walked in david david klein hold on a second hold on pick up that microphone where the hell have you been <laughs> uh courtesy of the new york city mta system i am 15 minutes late to this podcast this is unbelievable <laughs> but just calm down take a breath take some water we'll do a proper intro in a second all right okay all right so now half of this scholarship half of this is loan so a couple things that pop out for me that's not clear mm-hmm. it, it is absolutely not it's true that it is it, it says loan loan work study and then loan mm-hmm. but there's no interest rates there and there's either. no term right and there doesn't say there's nothing that says hey if this is going to be paid back in 10 years mm-hmm. this is what your monthly amount yep. will be when you graduate right, right? all that it, we have at the <laughs> loan eligibility and they have like little loan stuff here mm-hmm. with nothing I accept and I reject right so you literally click a button that's like accept without knowing interest rate without knowing monthly payment afterwards without really knowing the terms I find this mind-blowing mm-hmm. why this is what I'm trying to tell I you Jill. know <laughs> so one of the things you pointed out to me when we first met a few years ago maybe longer than that but it's been a it's while years, yeah. we've known each other <laughs> was that there was no standard format yes for reporting this why not 
just because it's not mandated by the Department of Education. So every college has their own little financial, or not little, sometimes massive financial aid office, and they determine how they want to communicate with students about their own financial aid process. So all the letters aren't even sent out on the same day. So what happens a lot of times is that parents, if you have divorced parents, one parent might get one letter, another parent might get another letter, you put them under their bed, you lose the letters, you don't know how where all these things are, they're in different formats. So kind of long story short, this is a very confusing um, an opaque process. So what should this kid do right now? Yeah, great question. So what we've actually introduced to help a student solve this problem is the first major problem, which is let's actually compare your options apples to apples. So right now you're looking at like apples, oranges, tomatoes. <laughs> you're looking at different ways of evaluating each different opportunity that y- you might have. And so what we do is a student can text us these award letters and we will put them in an apples to apples comparison so that they actually see, okay, for across all of my colleges, how much am I taking out in total loans? How much am I getting in total scholarships? What will be my work study across all of them? So we lay it out really clearly so that they can say, Literally, what do I have to pay and what do I have to owe? We'll be right back to talk more about the student loan crisis in the United States after this quick break. This is Jill on Money. Hi, I'm Jill Schlesinger, host of the Jill on Money podcast. I'm also a certified financial planner and a CBS News business analyst. I'm here to tell you that the Jill on Money podcast has a new sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations. Marcus offers simple, secure access to FDIC-insured savings products, including a high-yield online savings account that doesn't have any transaction fees or minimums. They also have certificates of deposit and no-penalty CDs. Marcus was recently recognized as one of Fast Company's most innovative companies in finance of 2019. To start building your savings today to help meet your financial goals tomorrow, go to Marcus.com. It's your money. You can do this. Marcus, on your side. Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. And now we're back with Kelly Peeler and David Klein. They're from Common Bond, and we're talking about the student loan crisis in America. Let's bring in David Klein now. David. Hello. The tardy. David, yes. welcome to the uh, broadcast center here Thank in you. CBS. You must live in some far away place. You just look so MTA'd. It's this you far just out, got MTA'd. It's this far out borough called Brooklyn. This is why I don't go to that borough. That's exactly why I don't go there. So now Kelly has identified this great program that is essentially helping kids with these decisions today. And David, you are the CEO of Common Bond, which acquired Kelly's company. First of all, what is your background? Why did you get into this? Let's talk about, like, what's the mission of Common Bond? Why the hell did you get into this business? Sure. So the mission of Common Bond is to lower the cost of higher education in the U.S. And the reason I got into the business is uh, very personal. I went back to business school. I had to pay my way 100% with student loans. And my options at the time really stunk. Uh, The rates were unnecessarily high. Uh, To Kelly's point, the process was complex, Um, as well as to Kelly's point, the service was really poor. Uh, My ability to just understand my options to pay for school were very limited. And I pretty much had to create that system for myself. And I realized other people were just like that. And I thought, you know, 
there's got to be a better way. And I went back to business school with the express purpose of starting a company and running it before graduating. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. I always knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and so there was this perfect storm of the personal pain point needing to borrow to go to school, and it was a stinky process. What do you mean? What, these entrepreneurial family members of yours couldn't afford your education, or they wanted you to sink or swing on, swim on your own? You know, I got some loans in undergrad, but they were clear they would help out during undergrad, uh, and that for grad school, I, uh, I'd be on my own. You know, I, I feel in retrospect blessed that that, that was the case. Um, had it not been the case, I wouldn't have felt the the pain associated with student debt in the U.S. Um, right now mm. and wouldn't have gone on this journey of starting Common Which Just to just to interrupt David, David actually negotiated his own undergraduate tuition. Really? I did. Tell us that story. So... Um, you know, tuition is very expensive. Uh, even 20 years ago, it was it was expensive. Not as expensive as it was today, but still expensive. I got some student loans at the time to cover some of the difference. Uh, my parents helped out some. I did work study. And to Kelly's point, I decided to negotiate my tuition my junior year. And the reason I, I wanted to negotiate my tuition is because, one, it was very high. Two, I had spent two years on campus being what I would call a good corporate citizen. Uh, I was in student government. I believe I they played call that sports. a community member. A community member, <laughs> I yes. I don't think we say corporate citizen. I guess we didn't call it that yet. <laughs> a very strong and active community what member. What sport did you play? Um, well, it was, the, it was the Northeast, so crew. Oh, you look kind of small to be. Are we your coxswain or what? You can't tell right now. You're, <laughs> you're looking. Hold on a second. You're looking at somebody who's who's twenty pounds lighter than he once was. <laughs> all right, all right. No one quite gets it. A coxswain, maybe. No, I was. Okay. I was. Uh, you were rowing. I was rowing. I was recruited to row. Really? I said no. I said, is that a sport where everybody is basically the same and there are no stars? They said yes. I said not <laughs> interested. <laughs> How much did you get in reduction of your tuition? Um, from what I remember, it was about $20,000. Holy smokes. That's amazing. That's, I mean, then, over, over two years. Yeah, but that's incredible. And yeah. the interesting thing about David's story is that I've actively been trying to tell people, hey, at least try to negotiate your tuition. We can help you. Other people can help you. Of course, like you mentioned earlier in the show, a university can say no. But the kind of prime time that we focus is when you've gotten your first offers, when you're about to go to college. What David did is, is I think, a really important thing to note is that you kind of always can um, be negotiating and pushing back on the price of tuition. All right, so David, there is a trillion and a half dollars of student loan debt, and if I go to Common Bond, hold on, I have it right here on my handy-dandy computer, you have a lot of different loans and opportunities to refinance. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the the refinancing first. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will ask me, I just spoke to somebody about this, and they said, I have uh, $55,000 in outstanding student loan debt. Uh, it's five and a quarter percent. Over the last year, I've made the little bit more than the minimum payment, and my outstanding balance went up by $1,000. So it seems to me that we're doing a pretty bad job explaining to people how to pay down loans. How does Common Bond approach the refinancing process? Sure. What, what we do is we say, hey, most of you have a federal government loan. That federal government loan comes with effectively one interest rate, no matter your credit, no matter your future prospects. And so it's a highly inefficient pricing scheme. And so what we do is we take a look at every individual borrower. We collect all of their data, we underwrite past credit, future prospects, and then we provide 
um, a lower rate for those who are eligible. And so when we provide that lower rate, we're saving people um, many times hundreds of dollars every month, thousands, tens of thousands over time. So when you do that, just so we're clear, you then do not have the ability to use some of the government's products like the public school loan forgiveness program. You forego that. And you also forego their income-based repayment, right? Right. So there are, and we're very clear about this with our borrowers uh, and our applicants from the very start. We say, if you have a federal government loan, it comes with certain protections that only the federal government can offer, like income-based repayment, where you pay no more than 10 to 15% of your income on any given month. And you will die with that loan, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And (laughs) what people don't tell you actually is whatever benefit you do get in that program or public service loan forgiveness, if your loan is forgiven after 10 years in the public sector, um, you actually get taxed on all of the benefit that was forgiven. So if you have a $100,000 loan and all of it's forgiven, you're taxed at your then ordinary income tax bracket. Oh, in one fell swoop? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, not a lot of people do. But we're, we're very clear that because for some people, income-based repayment or public service loan forgiveness, even with the tax treatment, is still better. And so we're very clear about that. It just so happens there are a lot of people who don't need that and instead can save a lot of money in return. And so we help those people out. So Kelly, Talk about this in terms of the Money Mentor program as well. Like, how do you wrap in the idea up front mm-hmm. about how the debt that you are assuming could limit your options in the future? How do your Money Mentors talk about that? It is within our best interest and Common Bond's best interest to ultimately make people more credit worthy. Right. So if you have if we can help a student negotiate their tuition, they'll theoretically have lower loans, which means that they might be able to refinance later on or be a better credit later on because they're doing something like taking a job or improving their credit score as opposed to worrying about their undergraduate student loans. David, when you um, look at this trillion and a half dollars, what could be done realistically, not with Betsy DeVos as Mm -hmm. secretary of education? Mm -hmm. okay, but. In a perfect world, what would happen with the federal student loan program to make it operate more more feasibly, like in a healthy way? That is uh, probably a more complex question than you might fully appreciate. When I hear that question, I think it has to do with, one, just the structural elements of student loan program in the United States right now. The fact that the federal government represents over 90% of all student debt. A lot of the pipes underneath the surface, a lot of the technology underneath the surface, and the servicing underneath the program is all farmed out to a bunch of vendors who don't exactly have the best history of putting a customer's interest first. To be fair to them as well, they're working within uh, a context, an operating sphere that is highly constrained. And so that's where you get a lot of these headline issues of customers not being treated right. It's because fundamentally, structurally speaking, the system is in fact broken. And so the question then becomes, okay, well, what do you do about it? I think there are a few different constituents that really matter here. One remains the federal government. One is the private sector. Uh, Private sector in two forms. One, private sector to offer better products and services. And two, private sector employers of many people in this country uh, who have student debt. There's something for both to do. And then the, the borrower themselves. I think everybody has a role to play. I'll just give you one example of something we're not doing today, but could. There is a bill in the House right now and a companion bill in the Senate that would allow any company to pay down their employees' student debt tax-free for the company 
and for the employee. I love that. I do too. It's a no-brainer. It's totally. a no-brainer. Yeah. And you actually have 115 co-sponsors in the House from both sides of the aisle. You have 20 co-sponsors in the Senate from both sides of the aisle. You know, it's no secret that it's difficult to get things passed in D.C., even when it is a political and economic mm-hmm. no-brainer. But we are active right now in D.C. with folks on the Hill, as well as the executive branch, to try and get something done to allow for employers to play a role in lowering the student debt burden in the United States and to do it in a way that's tax-advantaged so that not only does the company benefit from a compensatory perspective, but the employee benefits because they're not paying ordinary income tax on the benefit they're getting. They're paying down their loan two years faster on average and saving about $10,000. That's awesome. I think you can sign a petition, right? To yeah, so anyone right now, can sign a petition. We, we have an active campaign. It's called uh, Debt Free, Tax Free. And uh, if you sign the petition, which basically says, hey, I support the bills in the Congress right now to enable beneficial tax treatment for employer contribution to employees, we in the summer are going to go to the Hill and hand deliver all of those signatures Mm. to the influential folks on the Hill who can make something happen. Kelly, the fastest growing segment of student loan borrowers are over the age of 60. Mm -hmm. So I know they don't have the total, the the raw dollars aren't as big, but they are the fastest growing. Talk a little bit about these plus loans. How should families be approaching this? Yeah, so parent plus loans are for parents on behalf of their student, and you have to have a good credit score. So or at a least lot, a decent a one. decent a decent credit score. Um, and obviously that kind of changes over time. But but yeah, it's more if you if you think about loans in terms of expensive or being expensive, it's more expensive than the subsidized and unsubsidized loans. David, do you actually allow for the refinancing of parent loans as well? We do. Yeah. And do you find that that's a big need? I mean, you've got a lot. I guess you have a lot of um, competition for that because parents have more access to the credit markets. They do, technically speaking. Not many people, though, understand that they can refinance their Parent PLUS loans, whose interest rates are insanely high. So when we look at what's happening now, are you feeling are you feeling good about this? If I think about it from the consumer's perspective, both at a macro level and a micro level, um, I'll start micro first, very personal. We know that more people are taking on more student debt. What we also know increasingly, especially given a Fed study that was released in Q1 of this year, is that that is starting to impact individuals' ability or willingness to do things like take out a mortgage and buy a house or buy a car. And so to the extent this student debt train uh, isn't kind of taken control of in some capacity, this will likely continue to put stress on people on a micro level, as well as continue to put stress on the economy at a a macro level. It goes back to your other question around what can we do about this? One of the things that I addressed in my answer had to do with the financing cost of education. But the base of everything is the actual cost of education. And if you look at tuition increases and you compare that to normal inflation, it's very different. And even when you compare it to inflation in things like healthcare, it's right up there. And in some years is actually growing faster than healthcare costs. This all has to end. And it's not going to end well, is it, Kelly? Optimistic or pessimistic right now? I mean, oh, I studied man. financial like crises. The voice so. of doom, right here. That's no, but why I, got but along. I mean, but I, I, so I'm, I'm on a macro level pessimistic. On a micro level, to David's point, on the user level, I'm optimistic. And the reason why I say optimistic is because Gen Z, our user, um, so the next wave of millennials, are starting to treat college like they are consumers of 
a college education experience. And that's very different than how millennials treated their college experience, which right. was to say, great, I got into Princeton, have to go. Now you see people taking gap years. You see people negotiating their tuition more. They're treating it like it's an actual service, which it technically is. And of course, um, you know that all these colleges could lower the cost of tuition immediately. Just admit more people or you're like start your online division and let's move on. Like, why are we making letting this whole thing so, get ha- so, like get out of control? So I think part of what's happening is that you have some colleges and universities that, that charge a lot and the data will say it's actually worth it. But then you have an, another set of colleges and universities that charge a lot and the data says it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. And so I think everybody can agree that no one individual should be saddled with more debt than their life will allow them to pay back. And so the question is, how do you prevent that from happening? And I think there are a few interesting things that that we can do. It's still in conversational stages right now. It leads to some pretty tough choices that people, including politicians, are going to have to make around given the number of colleges and universities we have in this country, is it okay if we have less overtime? Because if we go to a world where the school is held a little bit more accountable to how many people they not only graduate, but get employed, and are therefore responsible for some of the delinquencies and defaults that happen from their students when they're not getting employed, that likely leads to a world in which some colleges and universities shut down. That also leads to a world in which maybe the number of people that are going to a four-year college today shouldn't be as high. Right. Maybe vocational school has a role and a larger role See, than it currently. Yeah. <laughs> is this what you were saying earlier yeah. before yeah. I came? Um, and I think these are really interesting and important conversations for us to have. Let's have you guys come back when it is uh, FAFSA season. Yes. We will be so happy if you just come back and keep educating us. So Kelly and David, thank you so much for joining us Thanks today. For us. Thank you. Thank you to our guests, Kelly Peeler and David Klein. Their company is Common Bond, and we'll link to it on our show notes. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. If you have a financial question, we would love to hear from you. The email address is askjill at jillonmoney.com. And you can download and subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Google Play, Radio.com, Stitcher, wherever. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. And the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.